Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. From Studio A in Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C., this is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. And greetings out there from Studio A here in Washington, D.C. here at Podcast Village. I'm your host, moderator Justin Russell. Joining me in the studio is a former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Affairs. He is the uh, he's the one we know as Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. And also in studio with me is the former Joe Biden Democratic political operative and attorney here in the great state of Maryland and District of Columbia. He is Dan Lipner. Buenos dias. Uh, Buenos dias. And out there in uh, Radioland, we have Rich Rubino, world-renowned political author and contributor to Backroom Politics. Hello, Rich. Hello. And former uh, Secretary Clinton presidential candidate, lawyer in the great state of Ohio, now big-time business lawyer in Manhattan. She is the one we know as Sharmila Chari. Hey, Sharmila. Hello, hello. And, uh, of course, we've got Rob, the engineer, behind the glass, keeping us honest, and Eric Thomas, our producer. He's doing producer-type stuff. And Charles Burney, our host, our valiant host here at Podcast Village, is here as well. Hey, uh, in case you haven't seen it, there is a lot going on. We're starting with what started to break this morning. It's really a news story, I guess, Alan, that's been going on for about 10 weeks, but it's coming quickly to a really big, uh, almost, I mean, would you call it violent or aggressive head right now? It's coming to that head, yes, indeed. So in case you haven't seen it, uh, there's been a protest going on uh, between uh, the young folks in Hong Kong protesting against the central government in Beijing uh, uh, about many things. But the main catalyst is this deportation order that has been going on with the Chinese government. Basically what it says is, for certain crimes against the central government, the Chinese government can extradite you with an extradition order from Hong Kong and prosecute you in a Chinese central court, which is the courts in Hong Kong are theoretically independent of the central Chinese government because of In case you don't remember, about 20 years ago, a deal was made between China and the the Crown, the British government, where they would give back Hong Kong in a, was it a 60-year or a 40-year? Well, the original was the 99-year's lease that expired. Right. And uh, then there was another handoff. Uh, I want to say it was like a 60-year, and we're 20 years in, but basically it's a, a 2047 end date before the Chinese can fully integrate Hong Kong into its own central government. Well, this has created a lot of stir inside uh, inside Hong Kong. Today, after days of a standoff between uh, Hong Kong riot police and protesters inside the main terminal at one of the world's largest and busiest airports, uh, the International Airport in Hong Kong, 
They uh, came to clashes today. The riot police dispatched uh, tear gas, became aggressive in dealing with the protesters. The protesters matched and became aggressive themselves. There's video out there of uh, of, of one uh, police, undercover police officer, actually being, I mean, just mercilessly beaten to unconsciousness. Anyways, it's got a lot of people both inside Hong Kong and a lot of people globally uh, really, really, really nervous. The, the big question is, Alan, you know, why are we as America, as the U.S. government not taking a bigger stand on this? That seems to be a question I'm getting from a lot of people. Well, the, the, <laughs> there are certainly opinions, strong, many strongly held, uh, about the original deal, uh, about what this means, about what it, what the significant is going forward. We we have very big fish to fry right now with China, um, as 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 we know with with uh, trade tariffs, arguments, fentanyl, um, U.S. imports of uh, or Chinese imports of of soybeans, etc. A lot of confusion about what's going on, up and down, back and forth. That dominates the issues between the U.S. right now and China. This is a strange case. This Hong Kong case, um, there were it, for for many of us, it, there, there felt like sort of an, an inevitability to some kind of major clash because you had for decades uh, British rule, if you will. It was a British colony, but with an enormous amount of autonomy to Hong Kong, which is why it lasted so long into modern times. Um, And then this forced marriage between this independent thinking, independent acting colony that was enormously uh, successful economically. I mean, this is a major financial hub in the Far East, if not globally. Indeed it is. And it it, it operated (laughs) with 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 market principles, capitalistic ideas, a lot of wealth, a lot of independence, political independence, etc. And suddenly it was put underneath uh, mainland uh, mainland China, if you will, um, uh, the, the, the People's Republic. And they realized that it was really important to preserve and protect the wealth, the, the banking center, the trade, the activity that occurs in Hong Kong. So China was willing to bring them in with some degree of autonomy, but, but it was this fundamental conflict of two systems. And, right. and the, the trigger point happened to be what you mentioned, this, this, ex- this desire order. to, we're going to extradite criminals of certain types. And the, 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 the native folks of Hong Kong saying, the heck you are, that is completely contrary to everything we've ever, that, agreed that we to. agreed to, that we stood for, and right. so on. Well, maybe, maybe not. But right. that, that's, the, that's the setup. Um, the, the rest of the world may make statements, but nobody's got any significant influence here. It, this is going to, it's going to get uglier and uglier because China at this point cannot and will not right. allow this kind of demonstration Rich, to occur. Right. Rich Rabino, I mean, up until the actual handoff or the beginning of the transfer between the Crown in London and the Chinese central government in Beijing, uh, there had always been tension 
between the freedoms that were given those in Hong Kong versus the autocratic rule of Beijing, it, it, it seems to me that while this is nothing new, I mean, in your eyes, what really made this a hyperactive uh, a hyperactive issue to get this many, this active, this quickly? Um, I think it's just kind of, it was just kind of, I don't know if it was necessary, this extradition specifically. I think it was probably, it was probably a litany of grievances, and this was kind of the, this was kind of the straw that, you know, broke the camel's back, if you will. Um, and, that, you know, I don't think any, I don't think certainly the Chinese or anybody else expected that they would get this much of a reaction. And it's certainly, you know, it's certainly bad publicity for the Chinese nationally. And, you know, in terms of why the United States, I think you, people say, why, didn't, why aren't they taking a bigger role in this? I think we have bigger fish to fry in front involving the Chinese specifically, and one of those is the issue of the tariffs and the trade war. And that's really kind of where the U.S. mindset is right now, and I don't think that dealing with Hong Kong or, or other, you know, other issues, for example, you don't hear us dealing with, for example, the, um, the, 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 the spying on the, on the Uyghur population or the Muslim population. The U.S. has completely stayed out of that. Um, just like, you know, and, and other issues certainly involving China and some of the islands that, they're, um, that they own as well. Sharmila, when, when we see the, the protesters, I mean, these are college-age protesters. These are protesters that, uh, in large part, don't, were never born or don't remember a Hong Kong under a Union Jack. Uh, are, are they... Are they literally just grasping at straws to fight the influence of Beijing, or is this something that could possibly make an effect in how uh, the Hong Kong executives run that that city-state? Well, I think even though you're right, Justin, they may not remember life under British rule, they're growing up in an era, and right, as Alan, point, as Alan pointed out, first of all, you know, Hong Kong still experiences significantly more political and social freedoms than mainland China does, right? And they're growing up in an era where the world is more connected than anything else, and so they see how the world operates in places other than mainland China and Hong Kong, right? They see, you know, much more clearly, and they have access to much more clearly, you know, what democratic life looks like in, you know, other parts of the world. And when they see their, you know, when they see their country moving backwards from that, even though they didn't experience what it was like to live under the British, they know which direction they don't want to go in. And so I don't think that, you know, just because of the fact that they have, you know, grown up, you know, almost exclusively under Chinese rule, doesn't mean that they're not aware of what truly democratic societies look like, and doesn't mean that that's something they're still, you know, legitimately striving for. Uh, Dan Lipner, I mean, what what doesn't make sense to me is the fact that we've seen, um, the, the the leadership in Hong Kong have remained mostly silent. Uh, and, and by the way, as has Number 10 Downing Street and the Crown in London, we haven't heard a lot coming out of London about this. And if I was Boris Johnson or I was Parliament, I would say, hey, wait a minute, this is in direct violation of an active signed deal that we have 
don't play with us because we'll come in, we'll recoup everything, and then we'll we'll fight this out. It's a big. I mean, that's a big ticket recoup item. Recoup everything. We, what are you what, talking about? What Justin? makes you think the British the have British the power are go to do that? China? No, 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 no. But in in theory, there are there, the, Ch- the Chinese are packing nukes now. It's well, that's true. But I mean, when I say recoup, I don't mean, tell they, the president that. No, no, Apparently, no, he still doesn't know yeah. that. No, but I mean, the British. There, there are there are recovery options inside the original agreement that gives. Uh, the British certain standing in resolving these issues and coming in and being almost uh, taking landlord-tenant rule almost in the uh, old agreement. Well, in that case, it would still be the British as the tenant. Um, that said, you still need enforcement, and the, there are a billion Chinese that might have something else to say about the this little island on the other side of the country, uh, excuse me, on the other side of the planet. Um, Margaret Thatcher did it with the Falklands. That's the Falklands. <laughs> uh, if, 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 if you, if you want to make a billion Chinese unhappy, compare them to the Falklands. Um, <laughs> so the the silence from the, the from the British, they got their own problems, Boris Johnson, not the least of which in Brexit, but also the seeming silence from here uh is not exactly been we haven't exactly been been well, making we're a whole supposed lot to be of noise. the tenant we're supposed to be the tenants of democracy free speech and uh and and agreeing to and upholding all these big international deals i mean we've got the deal maker in charge the, here the, the, there is almost no evidence since this administration has taken hold of any efforts on human rights Anywhere in the world, the United States has basically stepped back from its leadership role, even when the Secretary of State has spoken up on, uh, as uh, Rich pointed out, the 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 Chinese oppression of the Uyghurs. Um, without the additional force of the White House speaking on those issues, it kind of disappears, especially when this president. Um, has taken steps in in other parts of the world, uh, notably the Middle East, where some just absolutely horrendous human tragedies are taking place uh, underneath the power of American armaments, uh, though fired by, <laughs> by by Saudi pilots and 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 Saudi military. Um, this president and this administration has not made that a priority. And to some extent, uh, this president, I believe, has explicitly stated uh, when when those events have occurred any place in the world, well, they have their own their own system there, at, and basically been dismissive of the U.S. having any leadership role whatsoever uh, in the world on these issues. And when the United States is silent, it's very very hard for anyone else to make any noise, especially when the power player is the Chinese. Sharmila. The- the uh, the Chinese government out of Beijing has been saying through Chinese state-run media in Hong Kong that uh, you, we're hearing a lot of comments like, quote, don't mistake our restraint for weakness. Uh, other other impl- implications are that they are saying uh, we are trying to find peaceful solutions but are willing to use force, like which they did today at the airport. Uh to me, and we've also seen violent reaction back, by the way, by the protesters. It seems to me that is this protest a futile run at uh, 
you know, at a big brick wall, or is this something you think that uh, Beijing might find at least some compromise, if not uh, do away with the extradition order that started this? I mean, I think Beijing faces a pretty existential threat, and it reminds me a lot of the Arab Spring protests, right? So, you know, some some of the dictators in the Middle East fell due to those protests. Some, you know, like Bashar al-Assad, decimated their people but stayed in power. But there really was no middle ground. You didn't see a country that, um, you know, that was able to reach some sort of compromise where the protesters were, were happy, but the, you know, the current government stayed in power. So I think that, you know, I, I, unfortunately, I don't know that there's going to be a happy ending here. I think that, you know, the Chinese have, you know, quote unquote, showed restraint, restraint in that they have not come down terribly hard on, um, on the island. But you've seen that this is the second day of the airport blockade. And, you know, I think that they can, instead of doing it through violence, they may choose to do it through commerce first, right? And so if they can slowly choke off commerce coming in and out of the island and, you know, and, um, start suffocating the island's economic prospects, they might find that that's successful leverage to get the protesters to back off. Barring that, I, I don't, I can't preclude the possibility of violence from the Chinese and escalating kind of crackdown from the police and, and the governmental authorities. Rich Rubino, is this a modern day, is this the new Tiananmen Square? Uh, well, it, it, it appears that way. Um, you know, I don't know how it's going to necessarily be looked upon in history, though. I mean, certainly the Tiananmen Square was, I think, you know, it didn't necessarily, for all, for, all the, for all the media coverage that it got and for all that happened in it, you know, the Chinese still, the Chinese still essentially had, um, had, had free reign in terms of being an authoritarian regime, in terms of what's going to happen in terms of Hong Kong. I think it's just people that, I think they're starting to view, they're, they're starting to view the Chinese um, as kind of as almost an imperial power, and they don't necessarily want to be under the, I think in, in terms of some, for some, for some in Hong Kong, they don't necessarily want to be on their control. Under their control, China's kind of fighting back and saying you're going to be under control. But this is not what the Chinese need for public relations. And certainly, if they do do some sort of, you know, the more the more violent, the more truculent they are in terms of any sort of a crackdown on the on, on Hong Kong, the less they're going to be the less the less popular, shall we say, they're going to be seen in the eyes of the world. So you know, they're certainly they're certainly looking more now, I think, to how they're going to be looked upon. In, in, Certainly, they, what they, the last thing they want is, is to be condemned by the United Nations or to be condemned by, um, by, by trading partners. You know, it all comes down, you know, as, as you said, this all comes down to commerce in many respects. Alan Moore, is, is, the, is the fear out of Beijing and President Xi that if they do not squash this, that the same concerns that are being vocalized in Hong Kong could spill over to mainland? I don't think so. I, I think it's important to remember the differences here in the history. Um, you know, we've got, we've got, we've, we've, it, first of all, it's not an island. It's a peninsula and an island, uh, Hong Kong. And, and for 150 years, it was under British rule with the exception during 1941 and 1945, I think, when the Japanese uh, basically over. had Indeed. control. And then it went back to the British and then it, 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 it went to China. Its entire history is different from, main, from, from the mainland. Um, and this was the problem of this forced marriage. Um, and so I don't see the spillover from this weird uh, 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 sort of appendage to mainland China. This is the tail that is not going to wag the dog in, in, in my estimation. This is, this is the tail that most of China 
doesn't understand, and probably to the extent it does, there may be some envy and then some contempt um, because it's rich um, and and it's it's isolated and separate, and it's not obvious how its wealth helps the rest of China. So even though one can 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 make that case, the Chinese don't want to be seen as autocratic and and a police state in this regard. But when the airport is shut down by demonstrators. You're talking about I one f- of the busiest airports can, in the world. I, I feel very confident that we're just within a day or two or three of some mass arrests. And when you do mass arrests and people resist, <coughs> usually some people get hurt. You know, the 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 the, the police aren't aren't that well trained for that. The demonstrators are in new territory. You, you, but but there's no way that that the that the central government is going to allow the regional government to not exert control soon. Now, what what we don't know is how much violence that's that's going to trigger and what will follow. But the, but this is not an Arab Spring situation where you have folks all over the country getting ready to rise up. This is this unique place with this unique history. And right. what China's trying to do is contain it, but also not become the subject of new international criticism. I don't right. see, you know, we're, the president's not stepping up. I'm not seeing other U.S. politicians. I'm not seeing Democrat presidential candidates speaking up here, too, because we're not sure what right. makes sense. One can condemn violence as soon as there is, is some, but but uh, there, no, nobody's got right. a lot of influence here from right. the outside. Right. Yeah, I'm, so I'm not certain the Chinese care about the rest of the world's opinion uh, of them, especially since since Tiananmen Square, Chinese, the Chinese financial powerhouse has only grown. Uh, they've done a remarkable job of basically purging the history of Tiananmen Square from their right. own people. And to Alan's point, as far as the police not being well-trained, there were reports this morning that I saw that apparently the uh, Chinese mainland government has been landing troops and st- and positioning them for a potential response. Right. And, yeah, showing the lack of restraint they had in Tiananmen Square, it took a while while the, the tanks were positioned. Um, that said, at some point, some leadership said, enough. And but enough I mean, became I mean, but the, very Beijing, much enough and a very bloody enough. I mean, Beijing has a vested interest to see Hong Kong be integrated into central China as a whole because of the fact, I mean, Beijing already on its own is looked at as a major financial hub in the Far East. You include- In the world. Okay, uh, right. <laughs> All right, we'll give you that. They are the second largest economy in the world. But I'm world. talking about as far as, a, uh, as far as a financial center of activity, Hong Kong- and you give China, Hong Kong, and Beijing, that is a major financial powerhouse that is second only to us. Uh, th- so there's a vested interest in China to see that this goes very smoothly and it finally integrates into the bigger mainland central government. Is that accurate? Would they prefer that it not be bloody? Yeah. Do you think they care? That said, given the choice of uh, chaos and people standing up to their rule, they're going to take whatever the Chinese have consistently shown this, absent absent some kind of outside force uh, pushing them on the issue, 
they've consistently shown themselves to assert as much power as they have available in order to take whatever whatever uh, positions they they ha- have and make them uh, solidified in policy. And right now, the youth in Hong Kong are are challenging that. And without assistance from the outside world, they're going to lose and yeah. lose badly. Yeah, that's why we're going to let that be the last word. Hey, we're going to take a break when we come back. Yeah, we're, apparently, we're going to be talking about China and the economy all day. Uh, big announcement coming out of the White House uh, regarding the tariffs. There's big concerns coming out of Wall Street about the economy. All kinds of stuff we've got to talk about. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. This is Back on Politics. I believed and trusted. Now I'm disgusted. I had a show down. When I think of him, how much I love him. I get a desperate notion. That's the way I feel today. My heart is aching because he's making a plaything of my devotion. That's the way I feel today. Without any reason or a word to say, that man turned his keys in. He packed and went away. What good is living? I'll soon be giving my body up to the ocean. That's the way I feel today. Studio A in Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. And we're back for this episode of Backroom Politics in studio with me, Dan Lipner, Alan Moore. On the hotline, we've got uh, Rich Rubino, Sharmila Chari, and of course, behind the glass, 
We've got Charlie Bernie running the board, and of course our our producer Eric Thomas is doing producer type things. You didn't introduce the Black Lab. I, you know, you know, I, I am I am I am bad because you know why? As you pointed out, Black Labs matter. That's true. Um, we in in studio today. We have the newest addition to the Backroom Politics family. Uh, Daniel, if you'd like to introduce your yes, uh, my, my sister's retired guide dog Weaver, a a black lab who faithfully served as a guide dog for many years, is now retired and is in studio with us. Yeah, and a, and a, and obeys cool orders, set on command. That was nice. Uh, I'm sure Charlie loves the fact that we're promoting the the fact that Podcast Village is a dog friendly environment. They even have the pod dog, which. <clears throat> We're getting off track here. Anyway, uh, back to news. Uh, it was announced uh, a little while ago. I don't know. If, <clears throat> excuse me. I don't know if you know this, but uh, we're kind of in a trade war with China, as we were talking about China earlier in this segment. Uh, China and us, we're not kind of getting along in, uh, in, in the area of international trade. Uh, Trump had announced that we were going to be putting in uh, some pretty serious, pretty much anything we didn't put tariffs on before, we were going to put tariffs on now, uh, starting September 1st. Well, it was recently announced uh, out of the White House. In fact, we we record this on a Tuesday. It was record. It was announced this Tuesday morning that uh, Trump was going to hold off on putting tariffs on such things as electronics, cell phones, toys. We're not going to do it in September. We're going to do it around Christmas. In fact, December 15th, to be specific. Uh, so many things wrong with this. So many. Now then, this ties into a bigger problem. Many in the economic circles of uh, Washington and New York uh, and even international financial centers are concerned that we're basically that the American economy is basically tr- punch drunk right now and that we're going to hit a huge huge recession if we're not careful. Uh, this has been mirrored slightly by uh, even some of the economic advisors of President Trump, one of them being Larry Kudlow, who is slightly cautious, not as openly about concern, but cautious about the economy. It, it's worse than that, though. How's that? Because, I mean, even without, let's, ignoring the details of, of the moment, because of what the White House has been doing and the unnecessary tax cuts, and the position the Fed has taken as far as loose money, there's actually been there. There are less tools in the toolbox available for the next economic uh, slowdown. So that's actually going to create create more problems when it occurs. I mean, Alan, uh, you might could probably expand on this more than I can, since uh, you have a more more of a background in in, in trade and economics. Well. We, we, we've, we're have we 10 or so years into the longest economic expansion uh, in our history. A lot and, of, all, uh, and all 10 of those years happened under President Trump, correct? Did you want me to respond? Yes, I'm sorry. Or, sorry, I was making or, a joke. Or, I was making a joke. Or, or not. Um, uh, when, when you get something that lasts that long in our history— there, there are 
corrections that occur. There, they, we, we've seen some corrections in the stock market. Uh, last December, there was one that people thought, wow, this is it. And then it turned around and, and, and came back. Um, unemployment really is people very low. Um, uh, we really are spending uh, uh, considerably more than we take in. So there's, I think your your point is well taken that some of the tools one normally has, if the if the economy turns like deficit spending, we've pretty much exhausted our capacity to <laughs> to spend more and 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 tax less. We we have differences of opinion on the merits of the. Corporate side of the tax bill, where the where there really was some imbalance in the world, but we don't need to get into that. Where the U.S. tax on corporations was considerably higher and was affecting corporate decisions on 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 business location, et cetera, simply to get out from under the higher tax burden of the U.S. But having said that, we 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 got carried away and passed uh, a lot of additional tax cuts with that. That that were not offset any anywhere else. So we've got this extraordinarily high deficit spending. We got nobody talking about structural um, uh, deficits that deal with the the biggest growing pieces of the federal spending, which is all the 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 entitlement programs, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and so on. So we we sort of push that aside. We're still the strongest economy in the world, so people will still buy our debt, not because we're so fabulous, um, but because we're 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 better than just about every place else still. But we're putting that at risk as 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 time goes by, and and so. Uh, the president's got this this kind of schoolboy notion of of trade tariffs, who pays them, whether any damage has occurred. He maintains no, no damage yet. Well, he, he's he's talking against the comments of his own people and most people who have any knowledge or history uh, of, of of economics with these tariffs. There is damage. There's damage on the on the tariffs, and then there's damage in terms of the Chinese response. You go out into the Midwest to any to the to the farm country, particularly soybeans, um, where the Chinese were a major major importer of U.S. soybeans, and folks are saying. Uh, that's a, you, you get a mixed message. Some are saying, "I'm done with him. Enough is enough." And there's some others who are saying, "In the we still th- think he's doing the right stuff, and we think in the long term it'll pay off." But as more and more uh, uh, farmers, um, be they grain farmers, bean farmers, dairy farmers, uh, shut down, the greater the angst uh, out in uh, in in the what what has been sort of reliable uh, Trump country ever since uh, uh, since he announced uh, for his election. There's a lot to be concerned about. Um, uh, the 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 on again off again aspect of tariffs sends a lot of confusion. So the market's down four or five hundred points one day, and then it's up today almost four hundred points because the president said. And uh, Justin made a comment about December fifteenth. If you're worried about Christmas, the time to worry about Christmas is right now because that's when all the stuff for Christmas is being shipped in. And his tariffs were going to kick in on September 1st. And people said, among other things, he seemed to glom onto that, that 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 
that consumers really are going to pay higher prices at uh, whether it's Amazon or Walmart or 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 fancy stores, wherever you buy, you're going to be paying more for goods if they're covered if they're imports from China and they're covered with these tariffs. And so he's postponing, and then he's also saying, "I'm still. We had a good conversation. I'm I'm still hoping we're going to get a deal done, but." They have not done some of the things they previously said they were going to do. So, uh, Sharmila, you're the closest to uh, the financial center of the United States, up in Wall Street. What's the feelings up there, and do you have a different take on 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 what's what's happening? Um, I think people are still, I wouldn't say cautiously optimistic. People are cautiously walking, monitoring the markets. Right, the market had a pretty rough day yesterday, and now you know it's it's up about half of what it lost yesterday. So, I think that. People are wary, right? They, you know, generally Wall Street acknowledges that this president has been good for the economy by, you know, cutting regulations and, um, you know, lowering taxes. The people are still very grateful for the uh, the Tax Cut Act, except for homeowners in the New York City metro area. Um, and so I think that, you know, people smell a downturn coming, and not just because of the president's policies, but as Alan said, because we're in the middle of, you know, we're in the midst of a 10-year kind of economic expansion, and there are always corrections. Um, and so I think, you know, more than anything, people are wary. But I think that they are cautiously optimistic that this president would not – would be held back, either if he chose not to or was, you know, strongly advised not to do anything, you know, regarding the China tariffs that would really push our economy over the brink. Rich, do we have a, a, any kind of historical uh... – comparison to what's happening now so we can try to predict what's coming in the future? Yeah, I think so. I think if you go back to 1980, uh, when Russia invaded Afghanistan, uh, Jimmy Carter, the Carter administration, one thing, the thing that they're most known for, I guess, is the fact that they boycotted that year's Olympics, but they also put on a grain embargo in the Soviet Union. And that had that really angered a lot of folks, for example, for the, for the Farm Bureau, a lot of the farmers. Um, and this was, a, this was also a presidential election year. And you had, you know, this was just the, the wrong time to do it politically. And Ronald Reagan, um, running for running for the got the Republican nomination, used that as a um, used that used Jimmy Carter as a foil and saying, you know, if I get elected, I'm going to lift the grain embargo. And when he actually got, when he actually did get elected, he did lift the grain embargo. But this was something that, you know, this is something that directly affected a lot of the people who had voted for Jimmy Carter in 1976. A lot of the farmers, and then a lot of those farmers were seeing, you know. Um, we're seeing it so much harder, so much harder, certainly for their grain. You can make the same case, I think, today with issues like soybeans, because there's so much, there's so much of this is Trump's base. You know, it's, this isn't, this isn't disproportionately, shall we say, affecting in Massachusetts and California or, or states that he states that he um, he's not going to win, or places like Wyoming and Utah, where he, where, he's, where he's certainly going to win. But this is going to certainly affect him in places like Iowa. And you're going to give a lot of people who are very who potentially voted for him for economic reasons or voted for him because they like kind of some of his bravado. Um, I think politically he sees going after China. It's always you know in a, in a presidential election it's always kind of sexy to go after them. Um, Democrats do it by the way sometimes more than Republicans. And I think it's an interesting position because folks like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders their rhetoric has always been somewhat anti-Chinese. It's always been about you know they've always generally supported um, the idea of putting protective tariffs on. 
but now you see kind of the results of it, and now they're kind of trying to get, I guess, to the right of it. You know, Donald Trump, he's taking a position that was kind of anathema to contemporary conservatism, but now so it's interesting to see how some of the Republicans who are free traders, like Lindsey Graham from South Carolina, for example, now kind of have to go with Donald Trump because he's redefined the party. But I think the grain embargo was probably the perfect um, the perfect example in its history about what was going on then, and it really hurt Jimmy Carter. Let me ask this question, Alan Moore. Are, are we... Are we either being tone deaf or are we not listening to the concerns about the amount of debt that China holds? Is that something that we should be concerned about, particularly in the overheated economy that we're currently dealing with? Well, China is not self-destructive. Um, they, 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 they hold an enormous amount of U.S. debt, as do, 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 do uh, Americans, as to Japanese, as to Europeans. Um, we, we rely. They've been the big, the big, uh, the, the bigger buyer in in recent years. They're the big ticket but, holder right but, now. But they, I mean, they don't by no means hold a majority of the debt or anything like that. But, but. It is also an asset to them, and if <laughs> they're not going to be self-destructive and simply say, "We're going to stop buying" or "We're going to unload," it doesn't help them to directly try to harm the U.S. economy. They're kind of caught between the, the, the rock and the hard place, um, so they're they're pretty self-protective and pretty pretty careful. That doesn't mean one should just take it for granted. They're <laughs> but they're they're not like Donald Trump, who might just in a moment, say, to heck with it, we're not going to do this or do that. Um, they're, they're very careful and cautious. Uh, they have a long-term view. And that but, wasn't long-term... Hank, but wasn't it Hank Paulson that, that kind of put up the red flag saying, hey, look, you know, we are messing around with uh, dangerous, unstable dynamite by allowing China to hold this much debt? Not that we can control it, but... People like Hank Paulson have always seen that as a as a possible break in the dike. It, the biggest, the bigger problem is the what happens when people choose to no longer buy U.S. debt. So the the fact that we have historically low interest rates uh, on on federal debt, as Alan has correctly pointed out, it's because in in a world in the world of a market of lemons the united states is a safe bet the question is if the us becomes a not safe bet what happens and that's a pretty scary uh series of problems that none of us have ever seen before and at least for me com- uh, in c- contrasting what might be coming to the 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 housing bubble crisis um, there are a fair number of people in the know that that were able to predict that something bad was coming when people were paying in excess of half of their income when historically you were only supposed to pay a third uh, for housing, um, that something bad was coming, that in- incomes were not matching what people were p- paying for homes. So that bubble was bound to burst. But, What's coming is far larger, uh, or I should say potentially far larger, and the consequences of it are, at least in my mind, unpredictable. You see, Charlotte, to me, it, it seems that China, because of the importance of the agricultural market to our farmers and the people who elected Trump, has kind of a, a, a slight upper hand in this. You know, I go back and um, reading the, uh, the book by Andrew Ross Sorkin, Too Big to Fail, which became an HBO 
movie, the scene in Beijing where Hank Paulson is having a discussion with <clears throat> then finance minister, now Chinese President Xi, and says, you know, look, you know, whatever's happening to your economy is affecting us. If we unload because we look at you as garbage debt, it's going to tank your economy. Uh, I mean, are we really dealing with a situation, as Alan might point out under his scenario, there's kind of a mutually assured destruction between us and Beijing? I think that's absolutely true, but I think, right, too big to fail happened 10 years ago, and a lot has happened in those 10 years. China has gained significant economic might, you know, and leverage over the United States, right? They have become a lot more self-reliant. Certainly they, you know, we are still each other's largest trading partners, but I think the damage that China will sustain will be significantly less than it was 10 years ago. And China has also spent a lot of time and effort into expanding their trading partnerships with other with other nations and, you know, including the EU and including, you know, sort of the, the Asian countries um, and, you know, coming up with backup plans in case the U.S. economy, you know, in case the U.S. economy tanks. So I think that while it still could spell mutually assured destruction, the destruction would be a lot worse in the United States. But, you know, Rich, it, it strikes me that as we pull back, we become more America-centrist in our economic decisions, China starts expanding its profile into the bigger global market. Are are we are we wearing blinders on this, and that this could in fact backfire in a yeah, large scale? Yeah, potentially. I mean, I think certainly with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that was the argument that Barack Obama was making, and there was a meeting with Barack Obama and Bernie Sanders at the time, and Barack Obama basically made that argument. He said that you know if we don't get into this, if we don't if, if the United States Senate does not ratify the Trans-Pacific Partnership, essentially China is going to take over. Um, is, go, is going is going to take over as a leading as a leading trading partner. Now, obviously, there obviously there was a lot of skepticism, certainly in America on the left, as well as kind of the I guess you'd say the constitutionalist right, folks like Donald Trump and Pat Buchanan and all. And their basic opposition is in, in, ter in terms of this is that essentially it would, they would say that it would ta it's taking away American sovereignty. And you're kind of um, abdicating it and putting it into, you know, foreign or foreign organizations and um, that and that type of thing. But you know, in terms of from an economic from an economic standpoint, um, I do think that there is the possibility that China could really kind of make out like a bandit on this, in part because the United States is not um, is not ta is not taking that role in terms of in terms of trade. Alan, you agree? Well. I, I I was just I was just reminding myself of some of the facts, so we have some perspective here. Um, uh, if 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 the U.S. debt external debt is now in the twenty trillion dollar range, foreign ownership of that is just is a, is a is about thirty percent, about six a little over six trillion dollars. The Chinese share of that is about one one and a quarter trillion. That's a lot of money. But it's about six percent of the total. Um, it's a little bigger than what Japan has. There are other countries with hundreds of billions of dollars of our debt too. So we we have to we we none of that is to say that that China is not the 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 largest foreign holder 
I mean, it's a little. It, it always used to be Japan, and now China is about a hundred billion dollars above Japan. I mean, these are crazy big numbers. But it's not like they own ten, fifteen, twenty percent of our debt, and that anything they want, they can get. They are smart with their investments. They will. They're going to squeeze us. But it's it's a lot easier for them to target. Uh, us damage that, that in, in ways that will that will create political problems for the president. Witness the decision when he announced that he was going to impose ten percent tariffs on another three hundred billion dollars of imports from China. The Chinese response was no more uh, agricultural imports from the United States. Well, ouch. That that was a that was a huge deal for parts of America that matter enormously to this president, and yet have almost no impact on many other parts of America. It's it was it was this targeted response. It was like you're going to do this to us, we're going to do that to you, and by the way, we're going to let our currency run free, so it will the, it, it, it will decline in value. So a ten or twenty percent tariff will will cost less because the product costs less. There's there's tit for tat. There's you know, this is high stake stuff. This the sadness, and you've heard me say this before, is that early on we we took gratuitous, unnecessary, and unproductive actions against our allies, Mexico, Canada, Europe, and other parts of, of Asia, so that we're still kind of going this alone right. against China rather than collectively. Yeah, but this is this is a president who clearly does not understand the global economics, particularly the global economics of how tariffs work and how they affect every you know every American in the marketplace. I, I think you've made it too narrow. It's pretty clear this president doesn't understand global finance generally, not just global trade. Um, but this is the guy who's this is the guy who's literally got the bully pulpit, as we pointed out before, that is literally going out. Even today, he's got Fox Business News saying, and they had a graphic, and I and and Eric, remind me, I gotta I gotta send that to you because I want to post this, where it literally says this morning, the U.S. has taken in fifty nine billion dollars as a result of tariffs. Which makes no sense well, to me. Well, I mean, the, the United States has taken in money from tariffs. They've taken in that money from Americans paying the increased uh, fees. But that, that's not how you sell it that, on a Fox Business that, News to a Fox base. N- well, Fox Business News and the Fox base, that's – well, so the government has taken in that money. What it, the side-by-side should be – is what the payouts have been to farmers to try to subsidize them, and it's well in excess of the money that has come in. So no, there is hang, hang, hang on, hang on. Let's 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 be careful here. The fifty-nine billion is a legitimate number. It's not from China. Right. It's all tariffs. About half of it is from is from the the, the consumers the, the, the pay new the tariff, but the consumers pay it. Um, so let's say that the so number is, is let's that say new the, money. Let's say the number is from China in in the neighborhood of 30, 30 billion. Okay. Yes, that's new money. That 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 new that money goes, results, that new money that goes into the new economy money from and the, circulates. The new money no, from the consumer goes to, to it, the government. It goes to the gov- It goes to the government, and the <clears> question <throat> is, who pays it? And the, the the consumers have paid all thirty billion. Now the question is, um, 
what was the impact on trade with China? Because some price, some of the prices from Chinese products were lowered. So if you used to charge a hundred dollars for something on which the a ten percent tariff would be ten bucks, and you lower your price to ninety dollars, then the tariff's going to be nine bucks. You know, there's so there's equities that move around and all of this stuff. There's nobody just d- makes no changes in response to, to to new rules. The problem that th- we have with the president is he continues to believe that the Chinese are paying the tariffs when, in fact, it's U.S. consumers who mostly pay the tariffs. The Chinese may the Chinese producers may get less money for their product. So it's not a one to one uh, arrangement. It's just that, by and large, if you impose tariffs, the consumer is going to pay. Right. And then, what the other thing the consumer does is he says, uh, a ret- big retailer, let's say, uh, Walmart. Oh my gosh, it, it's going to cost this much to take to take in housewares from China. Who else has got some? Oh my gosh, here's India that's got some that's that are competitive, and they are now if we don't have to pay the tariff. Here's Vietnam, who will be a supplier. Here's Taiwan, who's who, who might supply. Well, Here's South Korea. Thing. I mean, the Chinese so, did this with aluminum well, back during the Bush administration. I, I mean, it, it all depends on the capacity. <laughs> people can't just up their, 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 their response uh, overnight, and people also don't know what's going to happen a, a six months from now, a year from now, two years from now. I think most of the marketplace believes that eventually we'll get back to kind of where we were with China. So if you've had a long-term relationship with China, it's not like you want to just pull up stakes. If you, you might have a big factory that you're invested in as opposed to simply putting out an order for a particular product and saying, okay, who's got the best deal on T-shirts right now? And we'll, we'll move here, we'll move there. So it's complicated. It is complicated. But <clears throat> Sharmila, it seems to me that when a president who doesn't understand the global impact of tariffs and policies that come out of Washington, when he goes out and makes bold statements in the bully pulpit, it, 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 it seems to me that that's just fire on top of an already overheating economy that when a correction does happen, it's going to be worse rather than than less. Is that accurate? I mean, I don't know how this is coming to you just now, Justin. Didn't Donald Trump just say that he could cure cancer and AIDS? <clears throat> he also said he he also said he knew more about the military than the generals. But we we're talking about the economy right now. This, this is not a president who puts any stock in the import of the words that come out of his mouth, right? Like you have seen over and over again, him, you know, be everything from flippant to negligent in his speech patterns and to, you know, refuse to acknowledge the impact or the consequence of his words. So I think that, you know, calling him out on this, you know, this late at the game is not really a real observation. I mean, Rich Rubino, you know, I always remember when 2008 hit and I thought to myself, you know, how lucky we were, <clears throat> excuse me, that we had a, a president like George Bush or George W. Bush in the White House, surrounded by some really smart people. I consider people like Hank Paulson, uh, who was at that time Treasury Secretary, uh, and then um, the Fed Chair, Ben Bernanke. I consider them very brilliant people when it comes to global economic fixtures. I don't think we have that now. Should Americans be concerned we don't have that type of thought leadership 
in Washington that we did maybe in 2008. And yes, Dan, I'll give you an opportunity to, to snark back. But Rich, to you first. Yeah, and I think so. And it was interesting what happened in 2008 was you had, was you had advisors in the Bush administration essentially advising um, the president to go against his instincts and essentially to bail out, um, essentially to, to help the whole bank bail out, which was against the instincts. And you had folks like Hugo Chavez saying that, you know, now President George W. Bush is a socialist. But, you know, obviously from a pragmatic standpoint, the entire bailout was paid for with the interest. But in terms of Donald Trump's case, I don't think it really matters because I can't really think of very many advisors that Donald Trump really listens to. Maybe Stephen Miller, he listens to an immigration but he kind of has his own proclivities, and I think, you know, I mean, go into issues like intelligence, whether Russia's behind the election. You know, Dan Coates was saying something, Dan Coates, in terms of intelligence, was saying something completely different. So Donald Trump, I mean, he has his instincts. Um, the folks that are around him are almost just around there for around him for scenery. I can't really think of anybody that he necessarily goes goes with. I think he has his own kind of the Trump doctrine on foreign policy, the Trump doctrine on economics. And it's whatever, whatever in his whatever in his mind. It goes back, you know, the fact that, for example, what he really believes. One of the things he's believed since he went on Oprah Winfrey in 1989 is that tariffs is a way is that tariffs is a way to to stimulate American economy economy and a way to help um you know to help to help domestic to help domestic industries. For example, that's one thing that he believes. Um, I think in I think everything else though I think is something that he believes for, for for political reasons. I think he really believed, for example, that going after China is something that's really good that would that would really benefit him. Going for, certainly going after certainly with his base, and I think that you know just other issues. For example, he the fact that you know he goes after the squad, he goes after folks like um you know like um AOC for example. I don't think he necessarily has any antipathy toward those four Congress people specifically. I think he just uses it as you know a way to galvanize his base. So. No, I don't think that. I don't think that he really, that there's anybody who could advise Donald Trump. Um, if, if we were in a situation like 2008, for example, he would go with his instincts over any sort of logical advice. Dan Lipner, go ahead. Yeah, so Steve Mnuchin, the, the uh, Secretary of the Treasury, um, who I don't exactly hold in high regard, even he's had some hesitation <laughs> on, on what's been happening with this administration. So the uh, what's going on is is simply not good, and the Chinese are in a much better position than we are. They have more tools in their toolbox. The the global infrastructure uh, effort, the uh, was it the Belt and Road is uh, initiative, right? Um, that they're doing it to with all roads leading back to China, literally. Um, is trying to put them in a position to disregard the United States and to surplant the United States as as a global leader, as a center of finance and trade. And they're playing a very long game. Donald Trump is not. Yeah, that's true. All right, I'm going to let that be the last word. On behalf of uh, Dan Littner, Alan Moore, Rich Rapino, Sharmila Chari, uh, special thanks as always to Charlie Bernie behind the glass acting for Rob the Engineer. Uh, not that we don't miss you, Rob. And uh, Eric Thomas, our producer, doing producer-type stuff. I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. By the way, you can follow us on Twitter, at Backroom Politics. You can also follow us on Facebook, on our website, backroompolitics.org. And you can also download us as a podcast on your favorite podcast services, including Apple, Google, and Spotify, because we're kind of a big deal now. This is the Best Political Talk Show. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.